The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Spotify for podcasters. Hi, friends. This is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. Spotify for podcasters is now available for use by anyone out there who's interested in producing, monetizing, and distributing their podcast. You can have access to some of the best tools in the industry using Spotify for podcasters. Go to podcasters.spotify.com for more details. Listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to look at some lessons from a Martian invasion. Uh, and this is actually primarily taken from a work from a gentleman named Hadley Cantrill, who worked for the Princeton Radio Project uh, under the auspices and direction of uh, a Mr. Uh, Paul Lazarsfeld. And uh, this. Uh, is kind of a continuation of some of the other lessons we've been going through here recently uh, relating to social engineering. All right, so this was a large portion of uh, some of the early beginning phases of how they used the broadcast media uh, for purposes of social engineering. And this is uh, one of the studies, uh, one of the early studies, where they determined that, uh, you know, this, this medium of radio uh, was a very important facet for the social engineering of society. They had discovered uh, through the use of uh, various methods that uh, people could be easily influenced by radio. Uh, so they, they went ahead and they did a large research study into this, and part of that research study was actually the presentation on October 30th, 1938, of the War of the Worlds broadcast, now famous uh, by Mr. Orson Welles, over the CBS broadcasting system, so Columbia Broadcasting System, before it actually got involved in television. It was uh, largely involved in radio. Okay, so... This was one of the big stories of the day back then. Uh, so what was done was uh, this was actually an experiment. And many people don't realize that. This was an experiment in social engineering. And uh, this gentleman, Hadley Cantrill, in 1940, published a book based just on this one experiment, this one radio experiment. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to read in Chapter 3 of his book, talking about some of the findings of this radio broadcast of War of the Worlds and how it was done and how it affected people on a psychological level and how this could be used later uh, for different types of 
methods, and research. So we're going to get right into it here. No other broadcast has produced a panic comparable to the one which found several million American families all over the country gathered around their radios listening to reports of an invasion from Mars. These reports were brought to them over a national network from New York City, our greatest metropolis, where people should know what is going on. Both the form and the content of the broadcast seemed authentic. As one listener put it, I just naturally thought it was real. Why shouldn't I? Even this program did not affect more than a small minority of the listeners. If we are to explain the reaction then, we must answer two basic questions. Why did this broadcast frighten some people when other fantastic broadcasts do not? And why did this broadcast frighten some people but not others? An answer to the first question must be sought in the characteristics of this particular program which aroused false standards of judgment in so many listeners. And I'm going to pause there for a second. Uh, So this is saying that uh, false standards of judgment in so many listeners. All right, so this is uh, the suspension of disbelief, essentially, is what this this term has been come to be known, right? So back in 1938, when this broadcast occurred, uh, many people did not have this uh, whole suspension of disbelief notion uh, down pat yet, because radio at that point was largely used to transmit information. Right. This is where people mostly got news stories at the time, and we'll get a little bit more into that as we read on here uh, as far as why and how people bought into this whole fictional narrative. Right. Let's read on. Realism of the program. In spite of Dorothy Thompson's remark that nothing whatever about the dramatization was in the least credible, no matter at what point the listener might have tuned in, No one reading the script can deny that the broadcast was so realistic for the first few minutes that it was almost credible to even relatively sophisticated and well-informed listeners, Miss Thomas accepted. The sheer dramatic excellence of the broadcast must not be overlooked. This unusual realism of the performance may be attributed to the fact that the early parts of the broadcast fell within the existing standards of judgment of the listeners. And I'm going to pause there. Pay attention to those words, existing standards of judgment. Now, this is a very important idea. This falls into what you would call normalcy bias. Okay, so people had this normalcy bias. This is what they would expect when they would turn on the radio on any given night of the week, or uh, I think this took place on a Sunday night, if I remember correctly. On a Sunday night, they turned on the radio, and they expected certain things on there to happen. And most of the broadcast, the beginning phases of it, lined up with these things that they expected to happen. So this is what they call here existing standards of judgment, right? So that being the case, you could see how they have this normalcy bias. They'll they'll turn this on. This is what they expect to hear. It's all in their routine, right? This is what they expect. Like if you turn on the television on a particular night of the week and you know there's a certain show that's supposed to be on, imagine that show was on like normal, right? And everything seemed fine. And then there was, uh, you know, a break in the middle of the program where they made some announcement and it looked and sounded official. It's the same kind of thing that went on here. But let's let's read on here. By a standard of judgment, we mean an organized mental context, which provides an individual with a basis for interpretation. 
If a stimulus fits into the area of interpretation covered by a standard of judgment and does not contradict it, then it is likely to be believed. And I'm going to pause there. And this is still a standard used today. Standard of judgment, right? So if you present the information to people in a way they're familiar with and uh, they're in a, a, a format that they're expecting uh, something particular here and you present it in that way, then they're more likely to believe it if they think it's actually uh, something out of the ordinary and it's it's breaking into the normal pattern of things, so to say. So let's let's go ahead and keep reading on. Just what some of the more accepted and common standards were that provided interpretations for the immediate acceptance of the broadcast as news are given below. Later in our discussion, we shall be concerned with the problem of discovering more individualized standards of judgment when accounted for the persistence of the original interpretation, even though the events reported became quite fantastic. So we're going to pause there again. So it's important to realize there's individualized standards of judgments that have to be considered for things as well. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll get there. Let's read on and see what else is said in this Princeton radio research study, right? Radio as accepted vehicle for important announcements. The first wide use of radio in the country was to broadcast election returns. Since that time, important announcements of local, national, and international significance have been repeatedly made. A few short weeks before this broadcast, millions of listeners had kept their radios tuned for the latest news from a Europe apparently about to go to war. Remember, folks, this was 1938, right? 1938. Think of the context of the time. So now what this is saying here is uh, radio had been known to be the medium for getting breaking news, right, uh, from around the world and from locally and stuff like that. And they would sometimes occasionally break into the regularly scheduled programs to give you this news. So that being said... Uh, that's, you know, kind of the context context we're, we're looking at here. So let's read on. They had learned to expect that musical programs, dramas, broadcasts of all kinds would be cut off in a serious emergency to inform or warn, warn an eager and anxious public. A large population or proportion, sorry, a large proportion of listeners, particularly those in the lower income and educational brackets, have grown to rely more on the radio than on the newspapers for their news. The confidence people have in radio as a source of news is shown in the answer to a question asked by the Fortune, that's the magazine Fortune, poll. Which of the two, radio or newspaper, gives you news freer from prejudice? And this, remember, this was in 1938. This took place, and this, uh, this, you know, uh, this poll that Fortune magazine did was probably in the same time frame, 1939, maybe 1940, right? So it says here, 17% answered newspaper, 50% believed radio news was freer from prejudice, while the rest either thought both media were the same or didn't know which was, which one was less prejudiced. On this particular night, when the listener tuned to the Mercury Theater, he heard the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra coming from the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza Hotel of New York City. 
Soon after the first piece had begun, an announcer broke in, Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. With our present distance, it is easy to be suspicious of intercontinental news, but in the context of the program, such skepticism is reduced. This report brought the story of the first explosions on Mars. The music was resumed, only to be followed by another break. Ladies and gentlemen, following on the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, the Government Meteorological Bureau has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch. This bulletin contains the information that a huge flaming object believed to be a meteorite fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey. The swing band gets in 20 seconds more, then the invasion continues uninterruptedly. Almost all of the listeners who had been frightened and who were interviewed mentioned somewhere during the course of their retrospections that the confidence they had in radio and their expectation that it would be used for such important announcements. A few of their comments indicate their attitudes, and I quote, We have so much faith in broadcasting. In a crisis, it has to reach all people. That's what radio is here for, end quote. Quote, the announcer would not say if it was not true. <laughs> the announcer would not say it if it was not true. They always quote if something is a play, end quote. Quote, I always feel that the commentators bring the best possible news. Even after this, I still will believe what I hear on the radio, end quote. Quote, it didn't sound like a play the way it interrupted the music when it started, end quote. So let's continue on reading here. Those were some quotes of people interviewed in this Princeton radio experiment. Okay. Prestige of speakers. It is a well-known fact to the social psychologist, the advertiser, and the propagandist that an idea or a product has a better chance of being accepted if it can be endorsed by or if it emanates from some well-known person whose character, ability, or status is highly valued. The effect of this prestige suggestion is especially great when an individual himself has no standard of judgment by means of which he can interpret or give meaning to a particular situation that confronts him and when he needs or is interested in making a judgment or finding a meaning. The strange events reported by the announcers in this broadcast were so far removed from ordinary experience and yet of such great potential and personal significance to the listener that he was both bewildered and in need of some standard of judgment. As in many situations where events and ideas are so complicated or far removed from one's own immediate everyday experience that the only expert can really understand them, here, too, the layman was forced to rely on the expert for his interpretation. And I'm going to pause there for a moment, folks. Let's read that again. As in many situations where events and ideas are so complicated or far removed from one's own immediate everyday experience that only the expert can really understand them, here, too, the layman was forced to rely on the expert for his interpretation. Where, where have we seen that before? Right? Where have we seen that before? Whereas uh, something just belabors uh, any type of common sense, uh, you know, for a narrative that uh, you must depend upon an expert to tell you what to do in this case. Right? 
this this is as old as time itself folks these are some of the control mechanisms used by the the social engineers of this world and they've been time tested and and true to be successful right and this is just something this is laid out this is a a publication from 1940 studying the 1938 uh war of the worlds broadcast on cbs radio right so <laughs> they knew what they were doing. It was an experiment. They wanted to see what kind of reactions they could get from the public. And uh, I, I think they got all the data that they needed to understand ways in which they could deceive the public and make them believe something that is false is true, right? So that's essentially what's been done here. But let's continue reading, okay, and see what else that Mr. Cantrill has to say here. The logical expert in this instance was the astronomer. Those mentioned, all fictitious, were Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory of Chicago, Professor Pearson of the Princeton Observatory, Professor Morse of Macmillan University in Toronto, Professor Indelkoffer of the California Astronomical Society, and astronomers and scientific bodies in England, France, and Germany. Professor Richard Pearson, which was Orson Welles, was the chief character in the drama. When the situation called for organized defense and action, the expert was once more brought in. General Montgomery Smith, commander of the state militia at Trenton, Mr. Harry MacDonald, vice president of the Red Cross, Captain Lansing of the Signal Corps, and finally the Secretary of the Interior described the situation, gave orders for evacuation and attack, or urged every man to do his duty. It is interesting to notice that only the office of the Secretary of the Interior was named. Here, the listener was affected entirely by the institutional role and status of an unnamed speaker. The institutional prestige of the other experts and authorities is obviously more meaningful and important than the individuals themselves. And I'm going to pause for a moment there. So they really pulled the wool over people's eyes, didn't they? Uh, so, you know, that being the case, <laughs> uh, like, think about the context of this, okay? This this news report comes across the radio. People accept it as a true thing. They start naming off all these experts, and they're giving names, even though they're fictitious names, of these uh, supposed experts in various places that, uh, you know, reinforces their the whole idea that this must be true. And people who obviously are right in that time and place, they're, they're kind of in this uh, fight-or-flight type response, which is exactly where they want you, folks. They want you to be reactive, right? They want you to react. They don't want you to think critically. So that's exactly what, what this did. This reinforced the idea of this reactive state, this fight-or-flight response in people, this fear response, Right? People actually took this seriously and responded to it in a serious way. Uh, so that being the case, I mean, they did so uh, without actually taking any time to uh, really research any of this stuff or, or look deeper, dig deeper into what had been done here. So, uh, you know, we, we could see how malleable the public mind can be in a situation that they perceive as an emergency, right? They won't necessarily take the time to really uh, dig deeper and try to find the truth of what's being presented to them. Uh, they react 
instinctively, right? It's a reactive state. So they, they put you in that reactive state, and you're less likely to try to really dig into the details of things if you think you are in imminent danger, which is exactly what they did with this radio broadcast. But let's continue on and see what else uh, Mr. Hadley Cantrill has to say here in this uh, work. This dramatic technique had its effect. Quote, I believed the broadcast as soon as I heard the professor from Princeton and the officials in Washington, end quote. Quote, I knew it was an awfully dangerous situation when all those military men were there and the Secretary of State spoke, end quote. Quote, if so many of those astronomers saw the explosions, they must have been real. They ought to know, end quote. I'm going to pause there. <laughs> let's, let's read that one again, because I find this one amusing, because this is still the same argument people use. Well, everybody would have to be in on it. <laughs> Listen to this. If so many of those astronomers saw the explosions, they must have been real. They ought to know. That's what one of the listeners said, right? Uh, so here we go. Here, it's the same kind of argument. Well, do you know how many people would have to be in on it? Well, only the, the fake ones, the, the phony names that they give you in the news media that you never bother to research to see if they're really even actual people or if they ever had that opinion or said anything, right? And, and that's essentially what's been done here. So you can see this is a blueprint, right? A social engineering blueprint for how to use broadcast media to steer and control the minds of people to get what they want from them, okay? And this was one of the early pioneering studies in this to see just how much people would buy into this stuff. Uh, so that being the case, let's go ahead and we'll read on here. Specific incidents understood. The realistic nature of the broadcast was further enhanced by descriptions of particular occurrences that a listener could readily imagine. Liberal use was made of the colloquial expression to be expected on such an occasion. The gas was a sort of yellowish-green, the cop warned. One side there. Keep back, I tell you, a voice shouts. The darn thing's unscrewing. An example of the specificity of detail in, is the announcement of Brigadier General Montgomery Smith. Quote, I have been requested by the governor of New Jersey to place the counties of Mercer and Middlesex as far west as Princeton and east to Jamesburg under martial law. No one will be permitted to enter this area except by special pass issued by state or military authorities. Four companies of state militia are proceeding from Trenton to Grover's Mill and will aid in the evacuation of homes within the range of military operations, end quote. Particularly frightening to listeners in the New Jersey and Manhattan areas were the mentions of places well known to them. The towns of Grover's Mill, Princeton, and Trenton, New Jersey were featured early in the broadcast. Plainsboro, Allentown, Morristown, the Wachung Mountains, Bayonne, the Hudson, Hutchison River, Parkway, Newark, the Palisades, Times Square, Fifth Avenue, the Pulaski Skyway, the Holland Tunnel are all familiar to Jerseyites and New Yorkers, and listeners throughout the country would certainly recognize many of those names as real. Quote, when he said, ladies and gentlemen, do not use Route Number 23, that made me sure, end quote. Quote, I was most inclined to believe the broadcast when they mentioned places like South Street and the Pulaski Highway, end quote. See, I'm going to pause for a second there. So you see, when they use actual real details, right, from the real world to present these narratives in certain ways, it makes them more believable. 
Uh, and, you know, that being said, if, you, if people are familiar with certain places or familiar with the names of these places, they would recognize them as a real place and think, well, this must really be something that's really happening, right? And that's essentially one of the... Uh, the things here that was taken advantage of by this radio study, okay? They, they wanted to see if uh, they could pull this off, essentially, and they did. <laughs> Let's read on and see what else is being said here. Uh, now, there's another person here that they're quoting uh, from the study. Quote, If they had mentioned any other places but streets right around here, I would not have been so ready to believe, end quote. <laughs> so, get this. So, the guy says here, that uh, because they were street names that he knows right in the area, that that's what made him believe, right? Even though he could probably look outside and see these very same streets and not see anything going on there, but he didn't bother to do that, did he? Uh, that just shows just how, you know, malleable the human mind is to these type of suggestions, right? As long as you're, you're hitting them with uh, this uh, whole suspension of disbelief kind of a motif here or what did they call it here uh, a standard of judgment right that that's what the uh, researcher in this paper calls it standards of judgment as long as it falls within their their normal or expected standards of judgment they're more apt to believe it and that's exactly what this does this takes advantage of that type of a principle so let's read on here everybody baffled the events reported proceeded from the relatively credible to the highly incredible the first announcements were more or less believable, although unusual to be sure. First, there is an atmospheric disturbance, then explosions of incandescent gas. A scientist then reports that his seismograph has registered a shock of earthquake intensity. This is followed by the discovery of a meteorite that has splintered nearby trees in its fall. So far, so good. But as the less credible bits of the story begin to enter, the clever dramatist also indicates that he, too, has difficulty in believing what he sees. When we learn that the object is no meteorite, but a metal casing, we are also told that the whole picture is, quote, a strange scene like something out of a modern Arabian Nights, end quote. Fantastic that the more daring souls are venturing near. Before we are informed that the end of the casing is beginning to unscrew, we experience the announcer's own astonishment. He says here, quote, Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. When the top is off, he says, This is the most terrifying thing I have ever witnessed. This is the most extraordinary experience. I can't find words, end quote. A few minutes later, Professor Pearson says, quote, I can give you no authoritative information sure their origin or their purpose here on Earth. It's all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. It is my guess, end quote. After the battle at Grover's Mill between the Thing and the Soldiers in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars, end quote. Uh, so I'm going to pause there for a minute. So you could see, uh, back in the time, uh, you know, over the the uh, broadcast medium of radio, uh, this would have a very profound effect on people. Think about this. Uh, many people thought this, you know, was something that was really happening, simply because of the way the material was presented, right? So they... The material was presented to kind of infiltrate their accepted standard of judgment of the time. So they tuned in expecting to hear 
just music from the, the hotel up there in New York, right? Uh, from Raymond Raquello and his orchestra or whatever it was claimed to be at the time. That's what they tuned in to hear. That's what they thought was going to be on. And they were just, they were already primed at this point uh, for listening to breaking news stories on the radio because of events happening in Europe at that time. And, the, you know, the fact that uh, war may have broken out at any moment over in Europe. So they were listening intently to hear any kind of breaking news. Uh, for that thing and they they knew that uh, there might be periodic interruptions in the regularly scheduled programming for news events like this and that's when they presented this war of the world's scenario never told anybody it's a story right this is fiction a work of fiction it's a dramatization they never announced that for people uh so most of the people that tuned into this they they weren't expecting this they didn't know that's what it was and they accepted this as real news because they presented it like they would real news stories that people were familiar with at the time. So this falls into that uh, whole idea of, of what their, uh, you know, their, their judgment of the time would be, their normalcy bias, so to say. That's what we call it nowadays. Uh, so anyway, let's read on, though, and see what else that uh, Mr. Cantrell reveals in this report. The bewilderment of the listener is shared by the eyewitness. When the scientist is himself puzzled, the layman recognizes the extraordinary intelligence of the strange creatures. No explanation of the event can be provided. The resignation and hopelessness of the Secretary of the Interior, counseling us to place our faith in God, provides no effective guide for action. No standards of judgment can be applied to judge the rapid fire of events. Panic is inescapable. I'm going to pause there for a minute. So by using people's standards of judgment against them in this case, and then presenting them with this fantastical idea that uh, we were being invaded by Martians, right? And they're, they're giant machines, and, uh, you know, they were spreading gas and using all kinds of weapons against people and laying waste to cities. This was out of, you know, the, the commonsensical view of the world at that time, right? People did not accept that kind of thing as being possible. But here it was being presented to them as if it was a true factual thing. So it, it kind of hit on their suspension of disbelief. And they didn't know how to react. And so it says here, panic is inescapable. And that's exactly what they were trying to accomplish by using this radio broadcast in that way, seeing how much panic they could stir up. And once again, panic uh, being the word of the day, panic, pan, based upon the archetype of pan. Uh, and, you know, I... I won't get into that tonight, uh, but that, that's a whole different story altogether. But uh, it's 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 hitting upon a key archetypal uh, uh, type of an energy uh, inherent in the world and in mankind, and and setting up people for things to come. But let's let's read on here. The total experience. Careful observation of everyday life behavior or careful introspection of one's own reactions in the course of an ordinary day indicate that in social life the normal individual experiences patterns or configurations of social stimuli. It is the atmosphere or the effect of a social situation that we notice long before we are able, if we happen to try, to analyze precisely what it is in the situation that creates the particular characteristic impressing us. 
The football fan wedged in between enthusiastic alumni, listening to the bands and the shouting, watching the teams, has the experience of being at the football game, an experience which is, to be sure, composed of the various stimuli impinging upon him, but an experience which results from the perception of all these stimuli as patterned, as coming together, as being inextricably interwoven in the production of a stimung he may have traveled miles to experience and i'm going to pause there and this is what it's all about it's the entire experience okay it's the entire system of experience and this is what the science of cybernetics is set up to understand cybernetics being the science of systems control and when you look at social behavior as a system then you could understand what a lot of this is all about and how cybernetics methodologies have been used to steer the behaviors and patterns of society uh, since at least this time and we're talking back in 1938 probably before that as well uh, it wasn't referred to in the same terminology as we use now, but the, the, the standards and the methods are all essentially the same. Okay, it works the same, no matter what you call it. The methods work the same. Let's read on. A person in church is likewise experiencing a social situation with particular characteristics that he can describe with adjectives meaningful to him. Even the awe or deference one may feel in an empty cathedral seems to be more of an immediate perception than an accretion due to a series of related specific past experiences. The importance of creating the proper atmosphere conducive to any desired action is, of course, well known to the revivalist, the cardinal, the dramatist, and especially today, the dictator. The elaborate preparations made by Hitler and Goebbels for their national and party celebrations are recognized musts for them if they are to enlist the enthusiasm they want to demonstrate. It is obviously the total effect they are after, just as a composer keeps his whole theme in mind while writing separate bars of a symphony. The lights, banners, uniforms, airplanes, marching, singing, and speaking at Nuremberg Congresses all go to make up the experience of a partitog and to reinforce adoration of der Führer. And I'm going to pause there for a moment. Boy, it sounds like this guy uh, seems to uh, really idolize Hitler, doesn't it? Hmm, I wonder if there's something to that <laughs> with a lot of these socialist types and uh, social engineering types. Hmm. Uh, so, so you see, <laughs> kind of the the mind state of the people behind this study, don't you? And but remember, this was before the war war had started. Well, actually, the, this book was published during the war. Let's put it that way. But uh, at the time of the original radio broadcast here, the War of the Worlds radio broadcast, the war hadn't really uh, started just yet, or uh, you know. Hadn't really begun in earnest just yet. So, let's read on, though. In our discussion, we have broken the program down into what we regarded as important characteristics in gendering belief. This type of analysis could easily be extended further by showing how individuals have been conditioned to more specific items in the drama. 
But the extension of this method puts a false emphasis on the problem by assuming at once that a social stimulus is essentially a series of discrete elements to which people have somehow learned to react. The enormously important possibility, which our approach so far has overlooked, is that social stimulus situations have their own characteristic and unique qualities. These qualities in here in the total pattern or configuration of the stimulus, just as the characteristics of triangularity or circular tree in here in certain figures. And I'm going to pause there, folks, and notice he uses the terms triangularity and circularity. And these are both essential terminologies to cybernetics methodologies, okay? The cybernetics approach to things, because you see circular circularity is a uh, one of the, the main components of what you could call feedback or a feedback loop, uh, which is um, an important facet to cybernetically engineering a system of some sort into a certain configuration. All right. And uh, don't don't get the, the term cybernetics confused because we've been taught to conflate that idea with robotics and computer systems and artificial intelligence and things like that, which are certainly a part of it. But cybernetics in and of itself is merely defined as this. Cybernetics is the study of whole systems control. So it's the study of the control of whole systems. So it looks to take an entire system and learn the most effective ways to control the system uh, through various means. Looking at the big picture, that's what cybernetics is. It's looking at the big picture. How do we control and steer the big picture? Not so much focused on a microcosm of the whole, but focused on the whole itself, right? Uh, so that's why some of these ideas are inherent in a lot of these things. And this actually predates uh, the, what would come to be known as the term for cybernetics, uh, because it's it's right around this time frame that uh, you know cybernetics as a science was pretty much introduced and uh, brought into the world uh, roughly in this time period the uh, mid to late 1940s okay and onward so uh, you know this this was the early phases many of these research projects here were some of the things that brought the cybernetics group into fruition and uh you know the the cybernetics methodologies into fruition so let's let's read on here i don't want to get too hung up on those different points because we got a bit more to go this broadcast of martian invasion certainly had an atmosphere or structure all its own and the methodological device we have necessarily employed of describing one thing at a time should never obscure the fact that we are dealing with a situation experienced as a unit and i'm going to pause there folks essentially he just said what cybernetics is all about right <laughs> so let's let's read on for some persons, certain specific elements may have been more important in the total experience than others. The case studies show enormous variety, but no experience reported seems meaningful if entirely isolated from the whole context. The elementarism, el elementarism springs inevitably from the method of the investigation, not from the experience of the subject. If anyone doubts this, let him reread the reactions reported at the beginning of the second chapter, which, by the way, uh, in the second chapter of this book, it gives a lot more uh, individual uh, 
statements of people who heard the broadcast and how they reacted to it and stuff like that. So that that's what it's talking about. So it's saying here uh, that it's the method of investigation, not the experience of the subject, uh, that, that really matters here within the context. Uh, so I, I don't agree with that. I think that's that's double talk. I think he knows exactly. It's it's all about the reaction of the subject, right? That's what they were looking for. That's what they wanted. That's what they were studying. Uh, so, you know, it's not so much about, uh, as he says here, the, the method of investigation. It's, it's about the reaction of the subject. So it's the total opposite of what he's saying here. But uh, anyway, let's read on and see what else it says here. Tuning in late. In spite of the realism of the broadcast, it would seem highly unlikely that any listener would take it seriously had he heard the announcements that were clearly made at the beginning of the hour. He might then have been excited, even frightened, but it would be an excitement based on the dramatic realism of the program. There would not be the intense feeling of personal involvement. He would know that the events were happening out there in the studio, not right here in his own state or his own country. In one instance, a correct, aesthetically detached or dramatic standard of judgment would be used by the listener to interpret events. In another instance, a false, realistic, or news standard of judgment would be employed. Uh, so let me uh, rephrase that gobbledygook right there. Uh, so basically what he's saying here is, once again, he goes back to the idea of what's called a standard of judgment, or we would call it a normalcy bias nowadays. So... If you hadn't heard that brief little blurb that they played before the program began, right, just prior to the program beginning, you wouldn't have known that this was a fictional representation or a play, a radio play. You would have just uh, tuned in with your regular normalcy bias and expected that, uh, you know, you'd be listening to the music being played down at the hotel, right? And that's what people were expecting when they tuned in. So if they didn't tune in just a few minutes prior to the beginning of the broadcast, they wouldn't have known this was going to be a dramatic representation or a fictional story. So when they tuned in, they expected to hear the band music playing. And uh, when it was interrupted by this news report, well, they thought it to be a legitimate news report because weeks prior to that, they've been being conditioned into accepting the normalcy of having breaking news reports interrupt the regularly scheduled program because of events happening in Europe. So uh, their their minds had been preconditioned to accept this, and this isn't by accident, folks. They they don't. This is not coincidence. These kind of things do not happen by accident or by coincidence. Okay, so just to uh, understand. What's being said here? So he, what he's saying here is, uh, had the person heard the announcement prior to the start of the show, he would have used a different standard of judgment to react to it. He would have realized it was a story and, you know, maybe enjoyed the story, right? But uh, the standard of judgment most people listening, or a good portion of the people listening, was that uh, they, they thought this was real news being told. And... Uh, just for standards of judgment today, whenever you turn on the news on the television, understand that you're using the wrong standard of judgment if you think that's real news. <laughs> so it, it, 
it's the same game being played today, okay? Uh, they, they take advantage of this concept of the standard of judgment of people. So people will tune in expecting that this is an authoritative source and that they're, what they're saying is true, right? And, and not expect that uh, they're pushing fiction on you, which much of the newscasts are fictionalized, okay? They may take maybe some little snippets of true things and work them together in a story, but then they'll show you of a clip that's six years old that's supposedly Ukraine right now, right? And then, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll pull on your heartstrings by telling you some sob story about uh, what happened to some children over there. And, uh, you know, much of that's probably false, what they're presenting on the television. Not saying nothing's happening there. I'm sure there is there are many things going on there right now. And, um, you know, I can't imagine it's good. But uh, what they're presenting on the television is not the truth of the matter. Let's put it that way. Uh, so... It's the same story today, okay? They use this this concept to manipulate people's minds and their behaviors and their responses. And, uh, you know, the, the public reaction to things. It's it's mass psychology, right? And, and that's the important part. Even though uh, the individual is smart, the crowd is stupid. And, and this is well known in mass psychology. And that's why they, they cater to the crowd. Uh, so... Anyway, let's continue on here. we got a bit more to get through. The number of listeners who dialed to the program after the preliminary announcement may be approximated by information obtained in two separate investigations. The data from each of these studies furthermore amply demonstrate that the time a person tuned in was a major determinant in shaping his later reactions. In a special survey conducted for the Columbia Broadcasting System, CBS, the week after the broadcast, interviews were made throughout the country on 920 persons who had listened to the broadcast. Among other questions asked were, at what part of the program did you tune in, and did you realize it was a play, or did you think it was a real news broadcast? 42% said they had tuned in late. And as Table 1 shows, there is a very pronounced tendency for those who tuned in late to accept the broadcast as news, and for those who tuned in at the beginning to take it as a play. Only 12% of the persons interviewed listened from the beginning and thought they were hearing a news report. Uh, so I'm going to pause there. So they made the little announcement beforehand, right? before the show started, that it was a, a fictional representation. But uh, a lot of the people didn't catch that. Uh, for whatever reason, they tuned in late or didn't catch it or anything else of the, that matter. So they didn't know that uh, it was fiction. So, of course, they took it as a news report. And this all comes down to trust. Trust in the media, right? And th this was the early days of broadcast media. So people at this point really didn't have much reason to distrust it because uh, by and large it was giving them accurate information in the beginning phases and this study was one of the early studies that showed that if they wanted to take things a whole separate way they could shape the reality with this broadcast media to make it represent things that it may not necessarily represent on its own and that's exactly what they've done it's a science called social engineering Okay, and they've mastered it. And through the use of mass telecommunications, they've made social engineering so much easier for themselves. Uh, th this would not be possible were it not for broadcast media, right? It would be much more difficult to control the way society behaves 
without things like radio or television or the internet or computers or social media or anything of the sort that we have now. Look at how they've, they've tailored it down through the years and made it down to the point where they could custom social engineer individuals. That's, that's exactly where we're at right now. They could socially engineer you on an individual level now. Whereas back in these days, it was, you know, kind of hit or miss. Like, they, they wanted to hit the whole crowd, so they had to use mass psychology strategies to do this. Whereas now, they could tailor make it down to the exact individual, simply because of all the data they've collected in the now, right? And, and that's the big thing. Data. Data is king. Uh, we're living in the age of big data, and it's soon to be, um, you know, well, we won't we won't go into that tonight. Uh, but uh, there, there's big things coming. Uh, the use of the data has made things possible now that weren't possible back in the early days of these studies. But this is the foundational, uh, you know, aspects of this whole science of social engineering people need to understand. This is where it came from. This is how it began. These were the observations they made, and this is what they based everything upon. And they discovered that the more data points they had, the more easily they could steer and control people. Right? So that's why they were always about collecting data. And it's been a very quiet thing going on for many, many, many decades now. But now... It's out in the open, and it's it's become so easy with computer algorithms to collect people's data, metadata, and everything else that uh, they have real-time, real-time networks where they could actually, you know, try to manipulate your behavior. And they've been very successful at this. Uh, so, you know, that being the case, let's let's read on here and see what else it says in this study. <coughs> In the survey made by the American Institute of Public Opinion, the question was asked, did you listen from the beginning or did you tune in after the program had begun? 61% answered that they tuned in after the program had started. 35% listened from the beginning. 4% did not remember. As Table 2 shows, here again we find that those who tuned in late tended much more than others, let me skip past the tables here, to regard the broadcast as news. Only 4% of the sample tuned in from the beginning and believed the broadcast to be a news report. So uh, credit to the, those people at that time. They had half a brain. Had they heard it from the beginning and understood that this was a fictional representation, um, <laughs> then, you know, but I find it kind of interesting that there were still 4% of people who heard it from the beginning and knew what was being presented was fiction, but they still believed it to be legitimate news. <laughs> so doesn't that say something uh, about, you know, some of the people? Uh, what did George Carlin say? Um, you know, imagine... Uh, 50% of the people are... What did he say? I can't remember the exact quote, but it's something like... Uh, imagine, you know, uh, so half of the people you know are so stupid, and then the other half is dumber than them, or something like that. I know I butchered that quote. I can't think of it. Uh, I always <laughs> always found George Carlin funny, but... Uh, and not to get hung up on that, because I totally butchered that quote, so that's not even going to be funny now anyway. Uh, but let's read on. Both of these studies led to the same conclusion, that tuning in late was a very essential condition for the arousal of a false standard of judgment. To be sure, many people recognized the broadcast as a play, even though they tuned in late. Just why this was done and by whom will be discussed in the next chapter. But, for our present purpose... 
purposes, it is important to raise and to answer the question of how anyone who tuned in at the beginning could have mistaken the clearly introduced play for a news broadcast. That is a good question, isn't it? So, um, analysis of these cases reveals two main reasons why such a misinterpretation arose. In the first place, many people who tuned in to hear a play by the Mercury Theater thought that regular dramatic program had been interrupted to give special news bulletins. The technique was not a new one after their experience with the radio reporting of the war crisis in October 1938, and it was a more unusual procedure to accept such news reports as irrelevant to the expected program than as an integral part of it. Of the 54 persons in the CBS study who listened from the beginning and thought the broadcast was a news report, 33, which is 61% of them, said that the interruption seemed to them authentic. This is apparent from the comments, quote, I have heard other programs interrupted in the same way for news broadcasts, end quote. Quote, I believed Wells' statement that he was interrupting the program for a news flash, end quote. Quote, the news was presented in such an authentic manner, end quote. <laughs> and isn't that the case? Uh, so you, you can see um, the way that uh, many people react to these kind of stimulus here, this kind of stimulus. Um, so we could see that uh, even though they tuned in from the beginning and they knew they were being presented with a fictional story, uh, when they had interrupted the music and the various portions of the broadcast to bring these news reports, they, they these couple people, 33 out of how many of it did they say? 33 out of 54 believed it to be real news anyway <laughs> because of how it was presented. Uh, so, you know, uh, what, what, what do you say about that? <laughs> what, what else could you say? Um, <laughs> gullible much? Anyway, let, let's read on. The other major reason for the misunderstanding is the widespread habit of not paying attention to the first announcements of a program. And I'm going to pause there. This is actually an important point, okay? Many people do not pay attention to the commercials or to the beginning uh, points of a broadcast. When you hear somebody, when you recognize the show hasn't started yet, and you hear jibber-jabber, blah-blah-blah-blah-blah, you're not really paying attention. It's the same on the television. If there's something else on there that's not the show you're looking for, you're not really paying attention. It's just background noise, right? So this is an important idea. And they, they understand this, and they know this, and that's why they, they put the announcement in a very short blurb in the beginning of the program. It was all part of the experiment, folks. Let's, let's read on, though. Some people do not listen attentively to their radios until they are aware that something of particular interest is being broadcast. Since the beginning of the hour is concerned with station identifications, and often with advertising, it is probably disregarded. About 10% of the 54 people who misinterpreted the broadcast, although they heard it from the beginning, said they had paid no attention to the announcements. These people obviously just happened to be tuned to the Columbia station and were not like the others who aired, anticipating the Mercury Theater. My radio had been tuned to the station several hours. I heard loud talking and excitement and became interested. My radio was tuned to the station, but I wasn't paying attention to it. We had company at home, and we were playing cards while the radio was turned on. I heard a news commentator interrupt the program, but at first did not pay much attention to him. I started to listen only when the farmer began giving a description of the landing 
of the tube. <laughs> so you, you see all these people here. Just I'm going to pause here. You see these people here. They all they had their radio on. It was background noise, right? It's it's this kind of the same as uh, a lot of people with their television set today. We leave it turned on, and it's largely background noise. Okay, it's ambient noise. You're not really paying attention to it, but you know it's there. And maybe once in a while, something loud will come on, and you know might catch your attention for a minute. And that's kind of what happened with some of these people. That's one of the important facets of this whole study, right? They they understood uh, that this was likely to be the reaction here. Let's read on. Anyone who studies the characteristics of radio knows that one of its chief shortcomings is its inflexibility as far as time is concerned. The listener must be at his dial at the right moment if he is to hear the program. In this respect, print obviously enjoys an enormous advantage. Newspapers, magazines, and books can be read when it is convenient to read them, whereas a radio program exists for a few brief minutes and then disappears forever. <laughs> Remember, folks, this was written in 1940, okay? So, uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it was kind of a novelty at the time, but it was, it really caught on as a communication um, methodology for people, and uh, a lot of people really liked radio uh it was it was a very popular thing it had caught on and uh, you know it was one of the the standard mediums of communication for the day they they got m much of their news and enter entertainment from radio programs right so uh you know that being the case it had really caught on in a big way and this was the early stages of mass broadcasting so uh you know that's why these studies were done to see how it could be used to affect people and sure enough they had come up with different methods for affecting people and they put these experiments to work and they did so in a large way with this war of the world's broadcast in 1938 and uh, this is the result here this is the uh, the, the report so to say uh, Cantrell put together an entire book about this and we're only reading just a, a small fraction of the book and this book's available it's out there on uh, internet archive and you could find it for free online in various other places uh, so it's an interesting read if you wanted to pick it up to understand a little better how some of these things have come about in modern society and this would be the roots of the use of broadcast tools to manipulate the masses okay so they've they, they knew what they were doing when they put these experiments together. They were just looking for to fine-tune the data, so to say. Figure out exactly who's listening and where and when and why and how and all of those different little fine points to this whole thing to better figure out how they could reach a certain, uh, say, uh, uh, category of people or a certain uh, metric of people. So that, that's that's what had been done here. Let's read on. The broadcaster can point out, however, that comparatively few people do much reading. This disadvantage of radio has many practical consequences for the advertiser, the politician, or the educator. 
The advertiser does not want to send his expensive commercial announcement into an air thinned of potential customers. The clever politician does not want to waste his best oratory before he has attracted the greatest possible audience. The late Huey P. Long, well aware of the radio habits of his constituents, began one of his radio talks as follows. Friends, this is Huey P. Long speaking. I have some important revelations to make, but before I can make them, I want you to go to the phone and call up five of your friends and tell them to listen in. I'll just be talking along here for four or five minutes without saying anything special so you go to the phone and tell your friends that Huey Long is on the air <laughs> what a great idea man I'll tell you what that guy <laughs> yeah, one of the early pioneers of radio it, it seems he, he knew what to do he knew how to get people's attention right he, he figured uh, you know he would tell people um, a little bit of nothing and then uh, have them gather more people to listen before he wasted his breath so to say <laughs> Anyway, let's, let's read on now. The great bulk of the latecomers consists of people who either turn their dials casually at the beginning of the hour, trying to find something that pleases them, or of people who intended to listen to a specific program when it began but misjudged the time. The CBS survey showed that two-thirds of those who had tuned in late did not know what program they wanted to hear as they turned their dials, while 12% of the latecomers had actually intended to listen to the Orson Welles broadcast at the beginning. Tuning in late, then, is a normal aspect of the listening situation. But now we discover that tuning in late may lead to mass hysteria. <laughs> Such a phenomenon is so far rare, but might conceivably become important in times of crisis or national emergency. And I'm going to pause there. Do you find his choice of words very interesting there? Uh, so he's saying here it's, you know, tuning in late could cause mass hysteria, but uh, such a phenomenon also, although so far is very rare, but it might conceivably be important later in the time of crisis or national emergency. So you see how they're already introduced the idea of using this as a social engineering trope, okay, in this kind of a situation. So uh, let, let's read on and see what else he says here. In such situations, it may be necessary to use different techniques to give news or information, perhaps wording a report in such a way that late listeners could understand it without becoming frightened. This problem is important for our purposes now, since we must discover why approximately 50%, an unusually high proportion, of the listeners to this broadcast tuned in late as the combined figures of the American Institute and the CBS surveys reported above seem to indicate. The large percentage of listeners who tuned in on this special occasion after the program had begun seems chiefly due to two reasons. In the first place, it must be remembered that the Mercury Theater program was competing with the most popular program of the week, that of the versatile wooden hero Charlie McCarthy. The regular weekly survey of Hooper Incorporated, a commercial research organization checking on the audiences of programs, estimated that the ratio of listeners to Orson Welles and Charlie McCarthy as 3.6 to 34.7. According to restricted meter checks, the average family listens 48 minutes out of the 60 minutes to the Charlie McCarthy program. Since McCarthy and his stooge Bergen were the recognized features of this competing broadcast, 
It seemed probable that some people who did not listen throughout the whole hour would either turn off their radios when the dummy act was finished or would cruise around on the dial until they found something that interested them. If many persons did this, it is likely that they would misunderstand the nature of the Wells broadcast and keep their sets tuned to that program to learn more about the situation being so vividly described. And I'm going to pause there. They knew exactly what they were doing, folks. It was not a misunderstanding of the nature of Wells' broadcast. They did it in the the method and the way that they did on purpose. They wanted to see if they could induce mass hysteria, and they were successful. Okay, the, these were some uh, of the early aspects of psychology and sociology that they were looking at at this time. They wanted to know what would you know induce this kind of behavior in people. Uh, so they they knew full well what they were up to here. Okay, so don't don't let this uh, you know whole uh, guise of plausible deniability in this report fool you about this. This guy knew perfectly well what he was up to. He knew what he was going to be writing in this book, right? He he knew and was just putting together the fine data points to try and reinforce the idea that they could use this tool, this new tool of radio, as a method for controlling people. Okay, and uh, they they demonstrated it in spades here, and that's you know what had been done. Uh, so anyway, let's let's read on here. To check this possibility, 846 cards were sent to persons all over the country known to have listened to the Mercury Theater broadcast. They were asked if at any time during the hour they had heard the Charlie McCarthy program, and if so, had they tuned out when Charlie McCarthy had finished his first act. Cards were returned by 518 persons. 18% reported that they had heard the competing program, and 62% of these said they had tuned out when McCarthy had finished his first act, and that they had then kept their dials set to Orson Welles. The excitement of the Martian invasion then apparently stopped the dials of about 12% of Charlie McCarthy's devotees. A second important reason for the increase in the number of late arrivals was the contagion the excitement created. People who were frightened or disturbed by the news often hastened to telephone friends or relatives. In the survey made by the American Institute of Public Opinion, all people who tuned in late were asked, did someone suggest that you tune in after the program had begun? 21% said yes. So basically, uh, this is all about herd mentality, right? Uh, that's that's what this was about, okay? They, they wanted people to go out and tell everybody else, hey, you know what, have you heard what's going on? Maybe you should tune in and hear what's going on. Um, and this we, we see echoed decades later. Uh, I remember exactly where I was on 9-11 and what I was doing. And this was kind of the thing, wasn't it? Um, it was the same thing. If any of you are old enough listening, I'm sure, you know, the vast majority of you listening are probably right around my age or maybe a little younger, maybe a little older. I'm not sure, but, uh, you, you probably remember very vividly that day on 9-11, what was going on. Uh, I remember I was actually working as in route sales at the time and I was between two of my accounts driving and listening to the radio when... Uh, everything came on that was going on. So when I got to my next account, I went in and I, I talked to the manager there and I said, hey, you hear what's going on in New York? And he's like, no. I said, you got a TV? He said, yeah. So he brought out the TV and he turned it on and we stood there watching and we were just mesmerized by it, 
right? And that's the same kind of thing that probably happened here with radio uh, during this time. It's, it, you know, through word of mouth, people began tuning in late, right? So that being the case, you missed the beginning phases of it, and you wouldn't have known that this was, a, you know, this was a staged event or a, uh, a play, so to say. So that, that's what had happened back then in 1938 with this whole thing. Uh, and they knew, they, they knew the aspects of mass psychology to understand that this would potentially cause a panic, and they just wanted to go ahead and catch the data points on that. And uh, we're going we're gonna to stop it right there, folks, because uh, I think we, we got the point here. So the lessons learned from a Martian invasion uh, were methods in how to uh, control the masses uh, by using different narratives, right? And by using these different methodologies, trying to, uh, um, you know, capture a hold of that idea of the normalcy bias and filter things through this normalcy bias to make it more believable to people, right? So, uh, you know, even though they use different terminology for it in this particular uh, paper here, or this, this book, actually, this is just a portion of the, the book by uh, Hadley Cantrill, published in 1940 on this whole event. So, uh, you know, even though they use the terminology a little differently, um, it's essentially the same thing. So this would be affecting people's normalcy bias, what we would call normalcy bias today. Uh, back in, you know, the, the book here, uh, he called it, uh, what was the name that he used for this? I gotta look and see here. It wasn't normalcy bias, but it means the same thing. Uh, so, you know, that being the case, this was the important facet of it. Okay, they were uh, trying to uh, figure out what's the best way we could get people to believe that this is really going on, to believe this false thing. Well, we have to, uh, uh, you know, go by what was their expectation, what were they tuning in expecting to hear. We have to keep that as normal and believable as possible and then maybe break in to uh, maybe make them think in terms of, well, this is an emergency situation now and interrupts their normal routine and that they need to take it more seriously. So, uh, you know, with that being said, that's pretty much what they had done with this whole concept here. So, uh, you know, there, there's all these different social engineering tropes that they use and this was a, a good illustration of it in many regards so even though the uh, information presented would seem unbelievable right absolutely unbelievable they were talking about uh, an invasion force from mars okay that was the story they went with here and people believed it right they they made people believe it by invoking several different techniques here uh, one of the techniques is by uh, actually using names and using the names of places people were familiar with in the fictional narrative, right? So to make people buy into the experience more, and that's what it's all about. They created this experience in people's minds, okay? And they, they took advantage of the faith that the people of that time had in the radio broadcasting because they had seen it as a an important uh, um, arbiter of information, right? And they trusted it, because up until that point, it hadn't been manipulated in this way uh, to make people believe something that was false, right? They were usually straightforward with people. So, uh, that being the case, 
they utilized some of these different methods and were able to steer people's judgment in a certain way. Uh, so, you know, steering their judgment, or what they called their standard of judgment, and that's what the, we would call normalcy bias now, using their standard of judgment as a weapon against themselves. That's, that's what they had done. They had weaponized people's standards of judgment to make them believe the incredulous. Uh, because they they used their expectations against them. So people's expectations tuning into this was, okay, well, I'm tuning into this entertainment broadcast, and it's it's probably going to just be this music, uh, and, and that's it. They tuned in thinking they were going to listen to the orchestra, and this was interrupted a couple times by what they thought was breaking news stories, which was a common practice at the time that they had gotten used to and they had been conditioned for up to that point. And, of course, well, they, they thought it was legit because they had no reason to disbelieve it at that point uh, because they hadn't been lied to on a massive scale at that point uh, by this particular medium um, like we have been lied to today on so many levels by all these different broadcast mediums. Uh, so that being the case, you know, we, we could look back now with a different set of eyes on this whole thing and understand what it was, right? And we have these reports and stuff like this put out by these social engineers uh, under the guise of trying to, uh, you know, steer society into a good place or make humanity better or whatever it is, whatever excuses they use to do the things that they do, right? And they think they're doing good and promoting good things to fix the ills of society or whatever it is they see that they, you know, or think that it is that they they do we have their information their publications on this stuff now and we could look back and we could understand what's been done and we could understand why we're in the state we're in today and we could understand that at some point regardless of what the original intentions were this whole uh, manipulative strategy has been abused right it's been abused it's been twisted and perverted into something of a more controlling nature uh, for a very small proportion of society over the masses of society. Uh, so that that's what's been done here, and now we can understand some of the methodologies and the lessons that they learned from some of these studies. And it's important to look at these things and understand where this stuff comes from, how it's been shaped, how it's been financed, and uh, a lot of this was financed by the Rockefeller Foundation. Okay? Most of it, in fact. In fact, the whole Princeton Radio Project was funded wholly by the Rockefeller Foundation in the beginning. And it was later moved uh, to, uh, I think, Columbia University, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it was no longer at Princeton after the, the beginning phases. It was moved to Columbia University. So... That being the case, uh, they studied many different aspects of radio, and this was only one, just one, of the experiments of that Princeton radio group at the time, this whole War of the Worlds broadcast. So that being the case, we could see this is a lesson, an example of how to socially engineer the masses into acting in a certain way that you want uh, through very subtle means, and like this is... Uh, just one of the basic methodologies used. Now imagine today, with the technology that's available today, how much more they can steer an agenda like this or, or steer a program like this, an experiment like this. Imagine, imagine, because of the level of, of data 
that they have at this point and the way they could steer it and control it uh, down to the individual level, imagine what kind of manipulation they could pull off now uh, when you look at this example, right? It incited panic in a vast number of people. And uh, that was that was the intention. They wanted to study the, the ramifications of it. And they got some backlash for it in the beginning, too, because, uh, you know, people had a little more common sense back in 1938 when this occurred, right? Now we've been socially engineered to have not as much common sense, first of all, and to uh, we've been engineered and, you know, conditioned to believe nonsensical things. I mean, look at our, our science. Look at the things our science would have us accept. That uh, 20 billion years ago, nothing exploded and became everything, and everything scattered around, and then it cooled, and then it re-solidified again somehow, and then it rained, and uh, the rocks magically produced life, and uh, this new life found something to mate with, and then, boom, we became everything. <laughs> and it all happened by accident. Uh, like some of the absurdities that they present to us as science right and uh you know and, and we could see that common sense went r running out the back door when they presented these kind of ideas to us people back in the 1930s had a little bit more common sense they understood a little more about the natural world they weren't as far removed from the natural world as we are and therefore they were not uh you know indoctrinated as much as we are so uh you know, and, and understand, Voltaire said, he who could make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. And haven't we seen that? Haven't we seen that since this time? So, uh, you know, many things have been done in the name of absurdity, right? Many atrocities have been committed in the name of absurdity. And all we could do is look back now and shake our heads. How did people fall for that? Well, I think we just lived through something the past two years that we could understand the answers to how people could fall for something like that, right? Uh, especially when you look back at, like, the events of World War II and stuff like that. Well, how did they, you know, fall for that? Why did they go along with that? Well, now we understand because we've experienced something similar in our day and age. And still we question, why do most of the people go along with this, Right? It's the same kind of thing, and it all has to do with these social engineering strategies that they gathered uh, from many of these types of studies. So that's why it's important to understand the foundations of where this stuff comes from and understand the methods that they used. And these are some pretty basic methods. Now, with the technologies they have today, they could do stuff in much more sophisticated ways than what they did back then. Uh, but the same, the methodologies are still the same, okay? The technologies have improved and been fine-tuned, but the methods are still the same. So that's why it's important to understand that. And that's why I wanted to talk about this tonight, because, uh, you know, invasion from Mars, invasion from Russia, there's no difference, right? It's the same methods, same strategies and, and tropes being used. It's just a matter of making you believe, uh, you know, certain things about who the enemy is and it's always almost always invariably a false enemy folks it's the boogeyman the big boogeyman they always have to use this fear trope and keep you guessing and and running around in fear uh, trying to uh, you know maybe prevent something like this happening or, or think that you have some kind of uh, a way of preventing this maybe if you wear a uh, a blue and yellow flag 
uh, on your shirt. <laughs> that that'll help in some way. Um, <laughs> do, do you understand? It's the same methods, regardless, regardless of what uh, the specifics are about the situation. It's always these same methods, and this is where they came from. Uh, so that's why I wanted to touch on this, because uh, as fantastical as the idea of an invasion from Mars is today, it was even more fantastical in 1938, and yet they pulled it off, didn't they? They got over a million people to believe it and fall for it, hook, line, and sinker, to the point where the it's said that peoples in Grover's Mill, New Jersey, destroyed their water tower thinking it was a walker uh, from one of these Martian landings. Uh, so... Anyway, at least that's the story I've heard. Uh, so if that's true, the implications are staggering, aren't they? Even if they could get a small percentage of the people to buy into something nonsensical like this and act upon it, it's still enough to do some serious sociological harm to the masses. So that's why they do the things they do, and that's why it's important to look at this stuff. So uh, I'm going to leave it there, folks. Thank you for tuning in tonight. Uh, I hope this was educational and informative for people, and I hope you uh, had fun while you were here. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night. Fantasy